This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. What was it like to serve as a gunner and a radio operator in tanks during the Second World War? To fight your way inland from D-Day deep into Normandy, even sleeping rough in the tank in between the fighting? Well, I'm your host James Patton Rogers, this is Warfare, and today's episode is dedicated to a man who did exactly that. Arthur Ibbotson was a private who took part in the landings on Sword Beach and fought his way through Normandy. Now sadly, Arthur passed away aged 99 on June 6th, 2023, early this year, exactly 79 years to the day of the D-Day landings. But today we hear his story and it is a pleasure to welcome his nephew Michael Ibbotson onto the podcast to tell Arthur's history and to recount his first-hand letters sent home from the war. Enjoy. Hi Michael, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? It's a great pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm doing very well. It happens to be Anzac Day when we're recording this here in Australia. Tell us, for our listeners all around the world, tell us what Anzac Day is and how important it is to Australia. It's, it's really important to Australia's history. It's a celebration of the Gallipoli landings. So it's from the First World War. And this is the first time that Australian troops, under the umbrella of the country of Australia... It served overseas, so it, it's regarded as a, a foundation moment. And of course, in many ways, a, a great tragedy as well in terms of the, the loss of life and the carting of troops over to Malta, known as the nurse of the Mediterranean, to try and treat these injured soldiers. Indeed, yeah. It was a baptism of fire, that's for sure. And as you well know, people were discovering tactics at that time. I don't think anyone can be particularly blamed, but yes, it turned into a bit of a, a vicious situation. We're not going to blame Churchill today, no. <laughs> it was a good idea, like many good ideas, that just didn't work out so well in the end. It was an incredibly vital idea as well to try and reopen those straits to move the global supply of grain, something that's incredibly important today as well. It was the movement of grain from Russia around the world. But we're not here to talk about Gallipoli. I, I can see myself easily getting turned and twisted towards that. But it does transition us nicely into the podcast today, where we're going to talk about a war that Australia was very much involved in, the Second World War, and specifically a first-person account of tank warfare during World War II. 
Who is it that's going to provide us that first person account? It's your uncle Arthur, Arthur Ibbotson, who was involved in Operation Market Garden and the surrendering of German forces at the end of the war. Michael, tell us a little about your uncle Arthur. What's very interesting for me about him is that he was a regular soldier. Yeah, he was conscripted in late 1942. Before that, he was a farmer, so in the farming business. His best friend from school, Stan Faulkner, had joined before him, and he joined up with the Grenadier Guards. And so when Arthur got his call up, Arthur contacted his friend and said, who should I join? What should I do? And he said, whatever you do, you've got to join an elite unit. Join the Grenadier Guards. Arthur found himself being very excited by that. He had the right heights requirements. He headed off down to London to join the Grenadier Guards. Wednesday, 1st of September 1943 in London. Dear Mum, I'm writing you just a few lines before I leave here, but I won't post it till I get my new address and you can write to me there. Well, I'm going into the armoured division. But first of all, we're going to Wellington Barracks till it's time for our leave and then on to Pierbright. We shall be doing public duties at London, so I suppose I shall be able to say that I've been on guard at St James and Buckingham Palace. The reason we're going to London is that they're short of men at the holding battalion. I'm glad that I'm going into the armoured and not the infantry. There are only about eight of our platoon going in the same as me. All the rest are going to the 1st Battalion, which is infantry. The only thing good about that is that at present they're stationed in Yorkshire. I would have been near home, but they'll be going abroad soon when the second front opens. I had a letter from Stanley yesterday, and they too are stationed in Yorkshire. He's in the 2nd Battalion, so after I've done my training, I might get there. By the way, I'm going to be a gunner or operator. It's not a bad job and good money when you pass out. Of course, I shall have a lot of training to do, maybe four or five months. I'm looking forward to moving, but I shall be sorry to leave Windsor. Been very hard here, but I've enjoyed it and I've never felt fitter. Still, I suppose you always feel the same leaving a place that you got used to. Two of my pals will be going with me to London, so we shall try to have a good time while we're there. We shall only be there for a short time and I don't suppose our money will go very far, so I should be glad if you'd send me some. I try not to be too extravagant and I can look after myself alright. Well, I've quite a bit of packing to do yet, so I'll close now. Much love, Arthur. The guards training isn't easy either. My granddad was a guardsman. He was in the Coldstream Guards, actually. So he was over in North African and the Italian theatre. Has Arthur told you much about what that training was like in the early stages? Yeah, the interesting thing is that he thoroughly enjoyed his training. He absolutely loved it. He'd been a farmer in Yorkshire and went down south, found himself in various very interesting places around London. He did a lot of his training in Windsor and he particularly enjoyed the regimen. He really enjoyed actually being in the army. He enjoyed the whole process. He enjoyed the fitness. He loved shooting rifles. He absolutely adored that part of his training. He did very well in that and really enjoyed it. For him, it was a really exciting experience to move out of home and find himself in that kind of environment. And what sort of roles was he moved into early on in the war? In fact, what sort of time period are we talking about here? 43 was when he did his training. 
And uh, he went in, he did all the basic training. So he was taught how to march, how to go on parade. Obviously, these are guardsmen. So one of their really important roles is to look good, is to march and, and put on good shows. So he was, all of that was done. But one of the things about the guards was quite early in the war, in 41, the British had realised they had a shortage of tank crews. And so one of the ideas that was put forward was, well, we've got the guardsmen. Why don't we make some of the guardsmen tankers? And of course, lots of people jumped up and down in Parliament and said, this is ridiculous. These guys are really tall. By definition, you have to be tall to be a guardsman. That's so literally the first thing that came fit. to my mind is you get in these gigantic guardsmen and you're cramming them inside these tin cans. That's right. So you're not going to fit them in these really small tanks. But the argument was won. So the, the Guards Armoured Division was formed in 1941. And Arthur was given an opportunity to sit an exam while he was doing his basic training. And in his words, he did rather well. So he passed and was instantly moved into basically the role of being a, a gunner. So his job was to primarily shoot the gun. And in British tanks at that time, as we will see later, the gunners were also radio operators, quite a technical role there, and often operated as observers as well, because they're in the turret, so they can stick their heads up out of the hatch and actually look around. It's quite an involved role. And a risky role as well, Michael. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. That's true. Certainly being in a tank is a Pretty scary thing, I think, particularly in those days when the armour protection was really quite primitive. For sure. What tank was he trained in? So he was, all of his training was done on the M4 Sherman tank, the, which was the standard British medium tank of the day. It's an American-made vehicle, but the British adopted it. It was very reliable. The British loved it. After the troubles they'd had with some of their initial British tanks in the in North African desert, they absolutely adored the Sherman, and certainly Arthur thought it was a very reliable and good tank. So we're talking about 1943 going into 1944. He's already done his guards training, and now he's got to do this tank training. Does he manage to become involved in D-Day or does he start to join the war perhaps after the landings themselves? Yeah, so he was actually midway through his tank training, really. He was actually down in Bovington. So his unit in the, in the Grenadier Guards, he was training against the Royal Tank Regiment. And I guess the Royal Tank Regiment, from what I can gather, basically were the enemy. They were pretending to be the Germans and so they were training in all their tactics getting all those things together. He'd already done his training up in Yorkshire, learning to shoot the gun. So he was up on the Yorkshire Moors, actually firing the weapon and doing all that basic training. But then he was moved down to uh, Bovington, where he learned all his tactics. And actually, while he was mid-training, of course, they didn't know that D-Day was going to happen. They knew something was going to happen, but they certainly didn't know when it was going to happen. And actually, his training was cut short. And in his words, they were just rushed over to Normandy. Now, he was rushed over, in his words, on the 15th of June. So he didn't land on the beaches or anything of that nature. And in fact, very importantly, as many tankers did, he was actually flown over. So he flew over in a, a C-47 Dakota from a little airstrip called a pottery airfield. So he lands on an advanced landing ground. So after D-Day, so that was the 6th of June, lots and lots of engineers were taken over and they took bulldozers and all that kind of thing. And they basically created lots of landing grounds, primarily for fighter aircraft, 
But A21 was a landing ground specifically designed to bring in new troops and to take out the wounded. And I think it's pretty clear that he landed at that little dirt strip, as he, he said, it looked like a, just a dirt road. And there must have been a, an illustrious setup of tanks ready for him. No, not at all. Yeah, so this is the, a little bit of a mystery, really. So he arrived. Of course, they were all keyed up. They were ready to go. They assumed that they were going to be thrown into the fight. And as you well know, James, it was a big fight going on at the time. The little town of Conn was the centre of a lot of fighting and the British were up against some of the, some very determined German opposition and a lot of panzer units. And Arthur thought that they would just be thrown straight in. In fact, Arthur's unit, about 150 men, found themselves in an orchard very close to Conn, so close that when the British bombers bombed the place, which they did quite frequently and very heavily. They could hear that. They could see the explosions. He was literally very close to the town. But they stayed in that orchard, and he really doesn't know why. Presumably, they were a reserve force. Maybe they were being held back as a reserve. Maybe the tanks destined for them sank to the bottom of the English Channel. I haven't been able to get to the bottom of that, and Arthur has no idea. To this day, he still doesn't know why he sat in that orchard and listened to the battles all around him without actually getting engaged himself. I'm sure it was a combination of everything all at once and the fog of war and friction and everything else. But Monty was trying to make sure that they didn't just break through the line, but they broke the spine of the German army. The whole point here was attrition. And much at the annoyance of the Americans, remember, but Monty's point was we've got to break them here and then we can move through. And so I assume that's what Arthur is waiting for. Arthur didn't know that, of course. He wasn't privy to all of the, the high-level information, but you're absolutely right. The idea was to try and smash the Germans. And of course they did. Eventually, it took longer than everyone hoped for, but they did smash them and that led to the, the Falais pocket. And for the Germans, of course, that was just just a terrible time. They were annihilated. Tens of thousands of Germans were killed and, and captured in the Falais pocket. And that's basically the point where Arthur's major involvement in the war begins, because that's the point where he was then moved north with the British columns and started driving north. But again, still no tank. He was put in a truck, given a three hundred three rifle, and they just assumed that they were going to be used as infantry, which was a bit disturbing for them because they'd been taken out of the infantry training quite early on and they'd been heavily trained as tankers. They're driving north in trucks, really completely in the dark, not knowing what was going on. But things changed dramatically. Things changed dramatically basically in August as he's been driven north. And this was a, a really important time for the British British soldiers refer to it as the Great Swan. This is the time when there was no German opposition. The Falais pocket cleared the Germans out. They were all running for Germany in a very chaotic style. And the, basically, the British were able to move north at an incredible pace, far faster than anybody had expected. And Arthur suddenly found himself being called over to Battalion HQ, and all these guys that had been in the orchard were suddenly told that you're now going to be given tanks. We've now been able to get the tanks forward. But guys, your role has changed completely. And suddenly Arthur found himself 
now in a completely different tank. He was given an M5 Stuart tank, which they refer to as honey tanks. They're tiny tanks. They're fast, they're light, but they're very lightly armed. That's right. So whereas the M4 Sherman was a 30-ton monster, these little M5 honeys were, were just 15 tons. They had a very small 37-millimeter main gun, but they were reconnaissance tanks. And basically, Arthur was put into the Battalion HQ reconnaissance troop, or the recce troop. So why were they called honey tanks? <laughs> So I've read a lot about this and there's a lot of controversy. I don't know if my answer is going to be correct and I'm sure that greater experts out there will jump all over what I say. But to the best of my knowledge, it was a term of endearment. So the Americans, obviously it's another American tank. The Honey tank was just known as being incredibly reliable, very faithful. It's quite a pretty little tank if you're into that kind of thing. So... It was lots of Americans used the term she's a real honey when talking about their girlfriends. And I guess they had a quite similar relationship with their tank and they regard it as a beautiful little honey. So they called it the honey tank. A term of endearment, I think, is, is the best way to describe it. Yeah. He's got a tank or a tank, so to speak, I guess. Where does he head next? Of course, he had to train first because this is a new tank. Oh, so it's so completely and different that they have to retrain how to use this that's right he and his new crew they tore up the northern french countryside driving around in this new tank of course the driver had the most difficult job because the difference between driving what was in effect a kind of a sports car of the tank world it had two cadillac engines in it it went very fast fantastic gearbox so it could go forwards and backwards at very high speeds so the driver, their driver was called Wixie, and he, he loved the tank. He absolutely adored it, and they tore around the countryside. Arthur said that learning to shoot the new main gun was really easy. He basically spent a couple of afternoons firing rounds into some French fields, and he was very comfortable with that. The radio was exactly the same as it had been in the Sherman tank, so he had no problems understanding how to use the radio. The most difficult thing for him, for Arthur, was actually realising that he was now an observer. So he was going to spend most of his time with his head stuck out of his hatch, sitting on the top of the tank, looking around for the Germans while they were doing reconnaissance. And he had to learn how to uh, cooperate with the artillery. So he had to learn how to call in artillery rounds onto targets. And that was the bit that he actually personally found more challenging than the tank itself. Yeah, that sounds like it's quite a, a technical thing to have to learn incredibly quickly under high yeah. pressure. But when does he start to, to apply this in the war itself? What's his first mission that they're sent on? So they were still part of the Great Swan at this stage. So they did their training during that rather, it's easy for me to say it was an easy phase, but that, that phase of the war. So they charged into Brussels was the basically the first thing he did. And, and Arthur arrived in Brussels on his birthday, the 7th of September. And that was a fantastic party atmosphere where everyone relaxed and forgot that the war was on at all. However, once that was over, Arthur's real war started in the roads north of Brussels and north of Leuven in Belgium. So take us through this stage of the war. This is where they're starting to catch up with those rapidly retreating German forces. That's absolutely right. So basically, remember, 
at this stage, we're now quite close to Germany. And the Germans, they may have had a rapid escape when they were in France, but as, as they approached Germany, they became much more interested in stopping the Allies, getting anywhere near their country. And so they started to become much more as they had been in, in the earlier period of the war, and they started to fight hard. And so every road, basically from Leuven through to Holland, became a, a death trap. As I understand it, the Germans had anti-tank guns, they had infantry units with these Panzerfaust weapons, which are very similar to the rocket-propelled grenades that are being used today in, in Ukraine. Around every corner, the Germans set traps for the advancing troops. So Arthur's first real encounters with the Germans were doing his very early morning reconnaissance trips. And remember, they were quite naive at this stage because they'd only just been trained on their reconnaissance tank and suddenly they found themselves facing a very formidable enemy. And Arthur did indeed come across lots of, lots of Germans firing at him at this stage. I can only imagine. And like you say, there were ambushes, there were mines laid. Is this something that Arthur had to experience as well? Indeed, he did. So one of his baptisms of fire was uh, that they were driving just north of Leuven in Belgium, and they were driving along Country Lane very early in the morning. And they were in a troop of four reconnaissance tanks. Basically, the way these M5 honeys worked is they worked in fours, and each troop had two sections of two tanks. And Arthur, Arthur was in the lead, so he was leading the column at this stage. And they were driving down a what appeared to be quite a quiet road at that stage, early in the morning. And suddenly there's this almighty explosion. And the immediate thought based on their training was that this is probably a mine, but it's also possible that they were being ambushed. And so the very first thing they did was they closed all their hatches and then they just started looking around through their periscopes as best they possibly could. And tanks are not very easy to look out of. It was a terrifying environment to suddenly find himself in. Eventually, they realised they weren't being attacked. So it didn't seem that it was an ambush. They turned their periscopes to the rear and discovered that the, the, the tank immediately behind them, their friends, had run over a mine. So this is a German teller mine, and it had hit the right-hand side of the tank, completely blown through the bottom of the tank. And so the two men sitting on the right-hand side of the tank were extremely badly injured. Both of them lived. One of them was very seriously wounded because he was sitting in the base of the tank. And the commander of that tank, who had his feet dangling down into the hull, he had his, one of his feet blown off. And all of the guys are suffering from smoke inhalation. And of course, everyone in Arthur's tank, all that could go through their mind was, we just drove over that. How many people were in these tanks? So four, four crew members. So these four crew members, have they literally had just driven over or, or very near that mine? That's right. So it seems they might have been one foot further over on the road. And so they missed that mine and uh, it hit the, the vehicle behind. After that, Arthur said that, Everybody in the tank that could just put their feet up as high as they could. And they realised just how dangerous mines were at that point. How do you move forward after that? The tension in the tank, you're rolling forward, you're moving forwards. You're just waiting for that explosion to come. 
Absolutely. I cannot imagine how terrifying that must be to have experienced that. And also to have watched friends that you've just spent a few weeks in an orchard with and then gone through all this training with be very seriously injured. And of course, Arthur was really busy at this point because he was the radio operator. So his job was to call up the ambulances and all the rest of it. And they all came forward and they... uh... But very importantly also, Arthur was very clearly told, you need to move forward. We've got to keep moving. And so they, there was no break. There was no chance to get over what they just experienced. They had to move on. And so they did. And quite remarkably, on that same day, they drove on some kilometres. And as they're driving along, at this point, by the way, after that event, Arthur's tank was moved to the rear. So they, they now had three tanks and his tank was now the third instead of the lead tank. And they drove on. And as they're driving along, they spot some movement off to the side. And fortunately for them, uh, rather than it being an ambush, it was just a single, very young German soldier, a teenager. And he'd been left out there on his own on picket duty as a sentry, basically, just watching. And being young and experienced and scared, they pointed their weapons at him and he just surrendered. And they got him on the tanks and I think they were fairly rough with him. I think there may have been a pistol pointed at his head. And interestingly, Arthur's tank commander, a guy called Dusty Smith, as a staff sergeant, he'd actually done a bit of German training as part of his preparation for the war. So he tried in broken German to speak to the guy and he basically asked him, where are the rest of the troops? You're obviously with someone. Where are the rest of them? And this guy just said, they're in the village ahead. And they asked them how many there were. And he said, oh, it's, it's a company of infantry. And again, Arthur's on the radio back to BHQ. We've got a company of infantry. What should we do? Now, the expected answer was hold fast, wait for the main squadrons to catch up with you. But that wasn't the instruction. The instruction was race forward into that village and capture them. So suddenly... These three small reconnaissance tanks find themselves being requested to charge into this village and see what they could do. So that's what they did. I can't imagine that was the the recommended course of action for a superior officer. <laughs> I think the truth of it is that they were just in a, a rush to move forward. Yeah, And so that was what was requested. So the three tanks charged into the village at very high speed. And they charged into this. I mean, it really was a very small village. It was still very early in the morning, and as Arthur puts it, they caught them with their pants down. Basically, these guys were doing their morning ablutions. So they were expecting that the sentry that they'd posted would get the information back to them and give them time to get ready. And suddenly they found themselves um, surrounded, not surrounded, but they had three tanks pointing all their weapons at them. And there they were washing their faces and hanging their clothes up to dry, and Basically, they realised that surrender was probably the best option, and and they did. So what ended up happening was that this little group of reconnaissance tanks captured an entire company of about 100 men without a shot being fired. And the end result of which was that uh, Dusty Smith, who was uh, Arthur's tank commander, he won the military medal, and the commander of the troop also won a, a, a very significant medal for that event. Quite a day. (laughs) 
I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. And together we bring you Gone Medieval from History Hit, twice a week, every week. This month we're telling the stories of four phenomenal queens of England, like Athelflaed, who successfully captured Darby, Leicester and York from the Vikings. Or Emma of Normandy, who married two kings and was mother to two more kings. How about Anne of Bohemia, who advocated for peace during the Hundred Years' War? Or Margaret of Anjou, who led Lancastrian forces at the Battle of Tewkesbury. Queens, you gotta love them. And we've picked out four crackers to explore for you in September. Join us for Gone Medieval from History Hit. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That is incredible. And it's just so fascinating to hear about these sort of actions that have been largely forgotten from history that you hear from regular soldiers and and their crews and these tank crews. We've covered some of the more senior officers. We've covered Strickland on this podcast before. We had his, his son on the podcast. But when it comes down to actually you know, the blow-by-blow of moving through Europe at this period of time. It's these sort of things that you miss. And I'd like to think that maybe this was the biggest thing that would happen in Arthur's war. But I feel like this was just the start of his war, Michael. That was literally the start of his of his fighting war and this was these kinds of events. Maybe the big capture was particularly special, but coming across Germans, it was a daily event. They were coming across determined Germans every single day and the reconnaissance units were always up front and so we tend to think of the big fights where the squadrons are dueling it out tank to tank and that kind of thing happened in Normandy but when you are moving an armoured column forward it's the reconnaissance units that are constantly in contact with the enemy and as Arthur says he's very proud of the fact that they spent most of their time in reverse gear. So they were told to observe, but not engage with the enemy wherever possible. Obviously, that wasn't the case with the capture event. But yeah, this was a pretty much a daily event. Take us through to Arthur's next major action, because he was involved in Operation Market Garden, wasn't he? That's right. So the capture event I just told you about, I don't know the exact date, but it was around about the 10th of September. And uh, Operation Market Garden started on the 17th of September. So this was a period of really intense activity and, yeah, a very stressful time. So tell us, for those of us who don't know, what was Operation Market Garden? What was the objective? The British were in an interesting position. They just experienced the Great Swan, where the German army had effectively retreated a very large distance very quickly. And so there was a great deal of confidence that the German army was beaten and that, look, all we have to do is just push on a little bit and we'll be in Germany and we can have this thing over and done with. And everyone was desperate to get the war over and done with. It was everyone was sick of it and everyone was sick of the death 
And so they just want to get it over and done with. The big problem of moving into Germany was a thing called the Siegfried Line. So the Germans had this enormously powerful defensive line. And so there was a sense that the British needed to get to the north of the Siegfried Line and into Germany. And that was just 60 miles or 100 kilometers. And so a plan was conjured and Bernard Montgomery, of course, was a very big part of the planning here. The idea was, look, let's charge north through Holland, get around the Siegfried Line and just get this thing over and done with. However, there was a very obvious problem and these people were really talented military experts. So they knew what they were doing. There was a really big problem and that was that between the Dutch border and Germany, were six major waterways, one of which was the Rhine River and one of which was the, the Waal River, both of which are huge. And so a plan was crafted to drop very large numbers of paratroopers onto those six bridges, capture the bridges intact, and while the paratroopers were capturing the bridges, this armoured column would charge north at a very rapid pace, as they had been doing, up to this time and just race across the bridges. Each bridge they came across, the US paratroopers, the 101st and 82nd, and then further up north in Arnhem, the British Parachute Regiment. They would have captured the bridges and they'd just be able to smooch across the bridges, drive into Germany, use the paratroopers as infantry in support, and the war might be over very quickly. So that was the plan. Oh, so simple, eh, Michael? It sounds simple, but as any military person will tell you, that's an unbelievably complex process. Just delivering the paratroops to the right place is not easy, right? You're not wrong. How does This is obviously an incredibly famous chapter of the Second World War, you could say infamous, but how does Arthur retell this period? Arthur regards it as a great success. See, Arthur regards it, and I think many of the troops that participated in it, despite all the things that have been said afterwards, they still moved 100 kilometres in a very short period of time. They did get the armour forward. They did take a great big chunk of enemy-occupied territory. Of course, the great sadness was that, particularly the British Parachute Regiment, they got stranded at Arnhem and many of them were lost. It was a terrible disaster for that regiment, but... The way Arthur sees it is that the tanks actually did pretty well and actually got where they were meant to do. They didn't cross that last bridge. So the six of of the five bridges, they didn't make it across that last one, but they did capture a great big chunk of territory, which made moving forward later easy. So he doesn't see it in the kind of negative way that uh, it's often portrayed. And I think that's, you know, if you're involved in something, I think you probably want to see the positive side of it because... After all, that was a big investment in your life, right? And in many ways, it's, it's a fair point to make. And it, it must have felt so incredibly successful and almost victorious to be able to be in that tank at the front in a super fast reconnaissance tank, being that person who's moving first over those bridges and forging the way for the Allies. That's absolutely right. And in fact, I I think you've captured it beautifully there. He did see it as a victorious time because he was very heavily involved in the very first, in, in the opening strikes as a reconnaissance tank. His unit was there right at the beginning doing all of the initial reconnaissance. So they met the Germans 
And indeed, the first day of Operation Market Garden is what Arthur regards as the worst day of his war in terms of the fighting. It was vicious. And in fact, I said to him, how many times did you actually fire your gun? And he said, we were in reconnaissance. We didn't fire the gun very often. But I fired it a lot on the first day of Operation Market Garden because there were Germans everywhere. And we just basically, I had to put rounds down range and the driver put us in reverse gear. And that was the way that day went. It was a very dangerous day with 88 millimeter anti-tank guns whizzing past his tank. And the crack of those things as they go past is just terrifying. So he said that was by far the most terrifying day of his war. That was it. That was their line. They were trying to defend the Third Reich, trying to defend the fatherland. Yeah, going back to this thing about this victorious feeling. So, yeah, the the rather negative view that people have of Operation Margaret Carden, historically, they felt truly victorious. So, for example, again, family legend when I was a kid growing up was that Arthur's was the first tank into Nijmegen. And indeed, it would have been amongst the first reconnaissance tanks into Nijmegen. And again, they saw the movements they were making at such rapid pace, taking on Germans as they went and winning. They saw it as a very victorious thing. And it's interesting, Arthur hates the film The Bridge Too Far because it depicts things so negatively. He really doesn't like it as he saw it as a very positive time. Tell us, how is it that Arthur's war comes to an end? When does the war end for Arthur? Arthur then, he had a long rest period after Operation Market Garden. Basically, they, there was a period where the Grenadier Guards were moved into a, a town called Grave. And they actually, it's, it's interesting, given his farming background, he said there were just wild farm animals everywhere because no one had looked after these animals for years. So they'd just gone feral. He apparently spent quite a bit of time after Operation Market Garden rounding up cattle and sheep, which is Something you just don't hear about, right? But there you go. But before the war finished for Arthur, he was involved in the Battle of the Bulge. One of the interesting things that happened, of course, the Battle of the Bulge is categorically an American operation. Basically, the Germans broke through in their last really major confrontation with the Allies and hit an area where where the Americans were based. And so it's, it's very much an American operation. But the British played one role, and that was that the purpose of the the Germans breaking through at the Battle of the Bulge was they wanted to hook up to to capture Antwerp. And so what Bernard Montgomery realised was that he had this large tank army still in place, which had had recently been through Operation Market Garden. It's now Christmas time. And so he moved his forces or a chunk of his armoured forces down onto the bank of the River Meuse. And the idea was if the Germans had broken through the Americans, then those armoured forces would have been the next line to hold them back. So Arthur famously had an extremely long nighttime drive to get to those fighting positions. He said it was almost as scary as being in battle because the, the roads were completely frozen solid. And it was, of course, they were driving at night with no lights. That was a very difficult journey. And they got down there and then discovered that they had to dig in to freezing cold ground. And his letters home at that time, he doesn't say where he is, of course, because that was classified. But 
it's very obvious where he was. And there's no doubt that it was freezing. And that's the overwhelming thing you get also from all the American histories of that period is just how cold that winter was. And Arthur certainly backs that up. He says it it was a, a freezing time. Saturday, December 23rd, 1944. Dear Mum, Well, since I last wrote, we've moved again. This time into Belgium, but we're still in the front line. But, of course, on a different front. The weather is wet and cold and it freezes at night. The mud is very thick and to crown everything, we've got rotten billets. We're in a farm building and our section are sleeping in a sheep pen. Luckily, there are no sheep in it as well, but... There are about 30 in the next one, so we look like having a very hectic Christmas. There's a village about 10 minutes walk away, and there's a big convent there, and some of the rooms have been taken over by us for recreation rooms, and I think we should be having our Christmas dinner in there. I'm in one of the rooms now writing this letter. They're very comfortable and warm, and so it's a grand change after the cold place up at the farm. It's about the first time my feet have been warm since I arrived here. I was on guard last night and it was one of the dreariest I've ever done. We've dug slit trenches all around the farm and we stood in them all night, two hours on and four off. After two hours, you are so numb that you can hardly get out of the trench. I always wear the pullover that you sent. It's lovely and warm and it keeps its shape well round the neck. We've been here about three days now and as usual it was an all-night move from the last place. We set off at 7.30 one night and we arrived here about 12 the next day. We were on the move nearly all the time. I always pity the drivers on these night moves. It's hard enough to keep awake in the turret, you can't help dozing off now and again. We usually work it one hour on watch and one hour to sleep. It's not impossible to sleep in a tank when you're really tired. Of course, one man doesn't drive all night. There's the driver and the co-driver, and they keep swapping over. We did very well this time. We managed to come all the way without getting ditched. I'm getting quite used to riding in the tank now. I shall soon have travelled 2,000 miles in one since I came over here. Well, I suppose you'll be getting everything ready for Christmas. It would be grand if we were at home so that we could really enjoy it. Still, we shall have to hope that we shall be by next year. By the way, I've got the cigarettes that Lena and Jack sent, and also two photos of her and Joan. I haven't got your parcel yet, but I think I shall get it okay. I must close now. Lots of love to all. Arthur. And then after that, they were then moved north. And of course, that's when the British and the Allies in all of the Allies basically did get to start to move into Germany. And this is where, again, Arthur thinks that what they'd done during Operation Market Garden laid the foundations for that. And then they pushed up into Germany. And again, Arthur said that the reconnaissance in Germany was just nonstop. It was quite terrifying. And the Germans were determined to fight. And so... He had lots of experiences there. I guess the most famous one is the T-junction experience where he was sitting on top of his tank doing reconnaissance as usual and they were coming up to a T-junction. And as they stuck their nose out into the main road that they were driving into, an 88mm round flew past at supersonic speed and, of course, he was sitting with his head out of the tank. So... 
you know, that split his ears as it, as it ripped past and they just said to the driver, reverse. And they were able to pull back into some bushes and, and didn't get hit. But that would have been a, a horrible thing to have happened towards the end of the war. We always say, and everyone says, and it is right, there is no easy war, but it seems certainly the case that Arthur didn't have an easy war. Being that spearhead, that front of almost every manoeuvre as you're moving through in that reconnaissance tank. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time for telling us this story. And of course, thanks to Arthur as well for recounting his personal history. Now, you have to tell us, because I, f- I feel like there's so many more tidbits, stories, elements of this that we need to know. Where can we read more? Are you planning on publishing this? Yeah, look, at the moment I have a document which I wrote for my family. So it was designed just to let the family know what Arthur had done. Arthur turns 100 on the 7th of September this year. So I've spent the last four years collecting information from him. I wrote a a document which I sent to you, which is why we're having this conversation, which is a summary but I am in the process of creating a, a full book and, and that will be a story with all the tidbits in it and I will be working on that over the coming months. So all the editors and all of the publishers out there, get in line and get ready to publish Michael's book because I can't wait to read it. Michael, thank you so much for your time. You are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. It's a great pleasure. Thanks very much, James. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.